0: Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Just a reminder that I have a book out called Lump, published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. Lump is my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you don't believe me, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down, best books of 2023 so far. I'll be reading from the book and talking about it at Take Cover Books in Peterborough, Ontario on Tuesday, November 21st. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Harley Rusted. Harley is an award-winning and best-selling author, journalist, And a senior editor at the walrus magazine harley's first book was big lonely doug the story of one of canada's last great trees it was published by house of Anansi press in 2018. his most recent book is lost in the valley of death a story of obsession and danger in the himalayas published in 2022 by knopf canada here and by harper in the us lost in the valley of death won the 2023 poland mountain literature festival award and the 2023 Religious News Association Award. The CBC named it one of the best Canadian nonfiction books of 2022. In its feature review of the book, the New York Times said that, in prose that moves like a clear river, Rusted has done what the best storytellers do tried to track the story to its last twig and then stepped aside. Harley and I talk about why he chose to narrate the audiobook for Lost in the Valley of Death himself what it was like to find himself on the cover of the New York Times book review, and why he has had such a hard time letting go of this story and starting a new book. So I want to start off by uh, thanking you um, for two things. One is, just as full disclosure, you edited a piece I wrote for The Walrus. um, Was that last year or two years ago? I've sort of lost track of time. The more recent thing I want to thank you for is something I came across while I was kind of getting ready for this interview, which is um, an audio trick that you talk about or you write about, I should say, when uh, when you write about doing the audio book for your most recent book, um, Lost in the Valley of Death, which is instead of drinking warm tea or herbal tea, your engineer or something told you to take a bite of an apple. Uh, yeah, I was... What, was what in, is that?
1: <laughs> I was in the middle of that process, or at the beginning of that process, which I I didn't do for my first book. Um, it wasn't really an option on the table. Um, and when I was presented with the option of either hiring a very experienced, um, you know, voice actor to do the book or to read it myself, I, I it took a a lot of thought to kind of figure out whether or not I actually wanted to do it personally. And I think being somebody who is just kind of inherently very curious about the process of how books come into the world, um, decided to to try it. And I was really nervous. I have no experience doing this. And it took a lot to kind of figure out, uh, to kind of get my, my feet on the ground, honestly. And I remember showing up, you know, like you're in first grade or something and you've got your backpack on, you've got your snacks <laughs> and, you know, your yeah. school books, you're ready to go, you're super keen. And one of the first things the, yeah, the sound engineer said, well, you mean you want to stay away from that homemade ginger lemon tea and next time bring in an apple. And we ended up talking for about 15 minutes about why apples are kind of a secret trick or the secret weapon for people who do a lot of this kind of vocal work. And there's something in the acid of the apple, the tannins in the apple that removes this sound that I never really noticed in audio until they started talking about it, which is this little clicking sound your voice makes. Right. And particularly after speaking for a long time, and your mouth gets a bit dry, but also starts producing these little clicks that can be quite irritating if somebody's listening to hours and hours of an audiobook. And the apple just completely removes them. And so every, yeah, every time I, every kind of few minutes or every time we broke, to, because I stumbled or was stuttered or whatever, uh, I would just take a little, little tiny bite of this apple and it just reset my entire mouth. It was incredible.
0: I uh well, I am literally trying it right now. I have a bowl of <laughs> apple slices right here. Um, because the the herbal tea thing, the the honey ginger tea seems like the most obvious. And mm-hmm. apples, you know, as I read in that piece, like it does seem counterintuitive, but thinking of the acidity makes a little bit of sense. Mm-hmm. Um and I swear we'll get into like more in you know weightier issues in a moment but I have to ask like the process of doing that audiobook first of all were your pub was your publisher okay with that were they like yeah go ahead or were they like let's test you out did you have to audition for your own audiobook
1: I, I didn't have to audition I probably should have the process <laughs> was was quicker than I I thought it was going to be I thought uh, they would send me some samples. What I honestly, what I did is I asked some of my my friends, my author friends who've done the process before, what what it was like, uh, and how they found hiring um, a vocal coach. Which was very split opinion about that. Some mm-hmm. of them were were fantastic and you know took their book to a whole new a whole new level, and some of them felt like it never. And I think particularly with memoir, it didn't really fit the uh, the book itself, the that, that voice didn't quite fit and you only get one opportunity to do these things. You know, your book is published. It's out there. It's in other people's hands. These kinds of decisions, I think, can can really help it uh, or, or can really hurt it. And I and I I feel like finding the right voice for that. I don't think I don't know if my voice was right for it, but I think because I was of a similar age of my main character. Um, Maybe kind of a similar attitude and maybe slightly similar perspective on life. I feel like that might fit well rather than getting an actor who was, you know, sixty-five or something might be a little bit off for for my particular story. And so that they were very, the publisher Penguin was very supportive of it. I I said, yeah, I think I'd I'd like to try this, and and they said, okay, away you go. And the the worst thing that happened is that I got a cold about a third oh, of the way no. <laughs> and tried to make it work, and at a certain point, the technician kind of stopped me in the middle of one day, and he said, "Okay, Harley, it's time to go home now and and rest. You're you're sounding really nasal," and uh, and so I had to take a few days off and and come back. And it was happening in the in the middle of the pandemic, and so there's all of that kind of concern uh, to to take into account. So, but um,
0: so I imagine in that case, it was probably you were entering on your own, going into the booth on your own being oh, totally. isolated behind glass yeah. from a yeah so yeah. there was no wasn't like you were hanging out with the engineer or anything
1: no and the engineer wore a mask the entire time i've still never seen her face um and we okay. we developed this like really wonderful i think a little friendship over those those many many hours and days of of working together on that and and i still have no idea what she looks like which is funny um but it was a yeah it was a really wonderful process you know your book goes out there and you finish it. You wrap it up with your publisher. you finish the you process the copy edits, you process the legal read, all of these steps, and you start talking about uh, publicity and what's going to what is coming up and what you're going to expect when the book comes out. And then you sit down in this really intimate process and read it aloud. And you know some writers do that often. They read their drafts aloud to themselves.. Uh, and like read it out loud and you kind of pick up on different things it's like a, it's a mm. great little little trick but to do it at a time where you actually can't change anything was a very challenging thing for me and i i came to different sentences that i just found so clunky or <laughs> or maybe not cheesy but just things that i really wish i could could go back and actually change and so it's a really fantastic thing to do while you still have the power to change what's on the page it is a very challenging thing to do when you have zero power to change anything apart from you know a couple mistakes or a spelling mistake that you can change in the next the next edition and so it was this it was this process of kind of connecting to a story on a on a very intimate way that I I hadn't really uh, up until that point but also this this experience of acceptance Mm. and this is this is something that is out in the world you know the old adage about book publishing is that once it's out there it no longer belongs to you it belongs to the readers right this was like a, in preparation of that this was a few months yeah a month and a half before the book came out and it and it prepared me for that because i i could not touch a thing
0: yeah i can imagine too that it's it, it almost felt too soon to do that like mm. If you had done it six months after the book came out and you had kind of moved on to another project and you were already starting to feel like if, it, if you were doing it now, you know, this much time passes and you're starting to feel a little bit, it's in the rearview mirror, you have some perspective on it. Coming across those sentences that that, you know, make you cringe, you'd be like, oh, that's the writer I was then. That was, you know, that's 2020 me or that's 2021 me. Yeah. At that moment, you're like, "Oh no, that's me right now." I'm getting uh-huh. this live feed of this thing that I wish I could improve.
1: Well, and and coming off of a process that had been about a year of editing, you know, mm-hmm. of of honing and changing and and this really, I love that process of working with my my two editors, one in Canada and one in the U.S. Uh, but it's long, you know. It it was a full year of doing that um, from from first draft and and so many moments where you can talk things through and adjust certain lines you know in the micro level and the macro level and then all of a sudden like it just felt so abrupt it felt like I had more opportunities to maybe make little changes and to see it on the page on this iPad in front of you and having to read it out loud like it, it just it was this it was actually I think it was a good time to do that because I I could take the next month leading up to publication in preparation for how everybody else was going to interpret it or read it Mm -hmm. or analyze it, maybe review it. And the first thing that I think has to happen is that I have to accept that my work is done. And it was this really, I mean, I left and I had this kind of half an hour walk home every day after doing a three or four hour recording session. And you know there were times that i got very emotional about the whole thing and having to go through certain parts of the book again out loud to record it to think about intonation to think about a totally different way of presenting this story that i had previously up, up until for five years working on this book was always black and white words that's it and and now to think about how to present it you know orally was a completely different way of um of internalizing it, of kind of working through some of these things that I thought I had processed years before in the research and writing. I, I, yeah, I I, honestly, I, I loved the process, but it was not an easy one by any means.
0: And it's almost, in a sense, you began that process of, as you say, almost letting go of this book, of kind of moving on from it, which is somewhat the theme of this podcast. And I've talked to writers who've who are a year or two out from the book and they're still kind of, it's in their head. They haven't quite let go of it. They're still like not quite ready to move on to the next thing for, for various reasons. But in your case, you had this odd process of like a month before the book even comes out, you're already starting the process of it's a thing. It's, it's discreet from me. It's not me anymore. It's this, it's this object. And now I can kind of move on from it. And you have that emotional, (laughs) those, those emotional, uh, moments where you're letting go of it.
1: I I think it was, I agree, but I also feel like I'm the worst or best. I'm not quite sure which one it is at that kind of letting go of these stories. I, I definitely hang on to them uh, emotionally, um, you know, academically, intellectually, for probably much longer than I, I perhaps should. And maybe emotionally is probably the strongest Uh, word there you know my first book came out in 2018 and I still feel like I am incredibly personally attached to that issue um and my and with my second book you know it's been a couple years since it came out and it still feels so present in my life for various reasons but also just emotionally I it you know a story about someone who disappeared and is presumed dead I'm still in touch with his mom um -hmm on a on a very regular basis i still have some friends of his reach out to me when they read the book and and i i i feel very uh yeah i feel very emotionally um connected to this story and some of its themes and some of the people who who this wasn't just a project for them this wasn't just a uh a a part of their profession to take this on right. and tell this story for 5 years this was their best friend or their partner or their son and i've never been somebody who i've never had kind of the journalistic skill really to take a story do it and turn to the next thing really quickly that kind of separation that i think a lot of you know news reporters are very good at i get stuck on things and i i kind of plant that seed and i want to see it grow into You know a sapling and into a big tree and i and i have a really hard time moving on to the next (laughs) the next project um as my agent will attest to right now (laughs) and i i said this to a friend about you know next projects that i admire the people who can do that who can who can just jump onto that next project and away they go i need some real Tangible personal connection to these stories, for better or for worse, it's just this thing that I have, uh, that um, that holds me back sometimes. But I think it's also can can kind of help me and push me forward when once I'm into that project. So it, as much as that audiobook process was a good preparation for letting go of the book itself, I think the the story beyond the book has definitely. Uh, planted its hooks into me and you know since 2018 when my first one came out you know I still every time on the west coast I still make the pilgrimage back to see Big Lonely Doug and Mm -hmm. and it brings me back to that entire process and what that was like and the people that I spoke to and and all those issues and so yeah as much as I would like to think I I I have let go of this story I I definitely definitely have not.
0: Um, I want to go back a little bit and just talk about very quickly the origin of this story because um, I know that it began as a magazine story. You wrote uh, uh, you wrote about um, uh, Shetler's disappearance uh, for I think Outside Magazine. If you could just sort of give a, a you know your sort of like one or two line pitch for, for that for that story and the book, but then also a sense of I wonder even while you were writing it for the magazine. Was there something in your head going, there's more to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, he disappeared. So he was this American backpacker uh, who basically quit his job, gave away all his belongings, kind of classically rebelled against his, you know, what life path had he had been set upon. And ended up in the Himalayas in India after this long and winding road, basically searching for his place in in the world a fairly kind of classic thing that i think everybody struggles with at some point in their life Mm -hmm. you know is there something bigger out there that is guiding me is this self-determination free will um you know what is everything kind of working towards what is what is my path through this kind of chaos uh, of life and he ends up in the himalayas in india in this place where so many people have gone to this one corner of the world In search of answers and you know there's this long history of of that that goes back centuries of famous people and average people myself who i include who at some point in their life was like everybody has gone to india with a bunch of questions and they have found their path they have found their calling there uh why why can't i go and do that Mm -hmm. and so he goes to india with a lot of that backstory a lot of that that baggage, a lot of those expectations, and ends up in this one tiny little valley in the Himalayas uh, called the Parvati Valley, which is spectacularly beautiful. It is the Himalayas up close, and it's it's a pilgrimage destination. It has these hot springs that have healing properties. And he ends up there and very determined to kind of live in a cave of all things. Um, mainly because of their transformative power throughout history, throughout mythology. And there he meets a Sadhu, an Indian uh, Hindu holy man, uh, who guides him on this pilgrimage up to this holy lake. And that's where Justin never returns. He disappears. And the twist in the story, the complication of the story, is that the Parvati Valley has seen about two dozen disappearances of mm-hmm. uh, foreign tourists, and, and also domestic tourists more recently, uh, over the past couple of decades, basically one or two every single year, and these are disappearances, no clues, no body, just like poof, disappeared. So it adds asks this, you know, it raises this really interesting question about not only are why people drawn to India and drawn to the Parvati valley, but what's actually happening to them when they arrive there, and, and so the story for me started even before. Justin um it started when i first went to india in 2008 and you know as as basically one of those uh, one of those people who looked there for some kind of answer some kind of guidance about life i had just graduated from my undergraduate degree had no idea what i wanted to do and felt like there was i was going to at least find some kind of path there
0: what was your undergraduate degree like what what did you what did the path that you thought you were on Where where were you headed?
1: I did my undergrad degree in international development and history. Okay. And I had this quite classic at that time, very naive goal that I was going to work for, you know, the UN in Kenya, for example. And and I think part of my first realization was that um, all of those images and ideas about what that job is like is there's a reality there that is very very challenging about foreign aid about um about colonialism about neoliberal ideology all sorts of stuff that I was when I was in school didn't quite fully understand and it took me a while to kind of grapple with that and so I had that kind of expectation of what my life was could potentially look like and i yeah i look back on that first trip to india it was a it was a full year i went to almost every state in the country and the big thing that came out of that was this realization that i i just want to tell stories i want to Hmm. um i see so much power in 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 just pure storytelling and there are so many issues out there that people don't hear about because for various reasons they just never find their audience or or get written or told and it was one of those times where you kind of realize that this had been kind of a passion of yours and maybe a hobby up until that point very internal but never quite realized that this could be something bigger it's not like i ever thought that i wanted to be a journalist in high school and kind of set in motion this Mm -hmm. i think that if you'd asked me in high school i wanted to be an (laughs) archaeologist but i think the like i think the through arc of all these things is this real fascination with with stories and how they're told and how how well they can be told and how they can captivate people and what kind of change they can they can spark either um not necessarily politically or or within society but internally how it can it can inspire somebody to do something Uh, really wonderful in the world and so I, I I feel like that was the the common thread and it took me not only going to India but then later going to journalism school to um to see that it could be a profession possibly hopefully um and so that was that first trip was formative I think and I think I didn't quite realize it in the moment but I look back on it as as one of the biggest kind of turning points in my life,
0: were you keeping a journal or writing at all no. during that trip? Were you kind of starting to keep put this stuff down and in, in words?
1: Yeah, I mean it'll never see the light of day because it's, <laughs> it's these things should exist in shoeboxes. Um, <laughs> but it was future future
0: scholars will be pouring right, over them. You know right. that in, in future university, archaeologists, university yeah. archives, or something.
1: Yeah, well hopefully not i'll I'll burn it to prevent that from happening but um i think the thing that i realized in in keeping those journals wasn't that i was writing about kind of my experiences it wasn't a documentation of what i did during the day it wasn't and if i think if you look back you'd wonder where i was or you know for somebody who kind of lives in a profession that is so rooted in fact and you know who what where when it was it was the people and the why that i was so fascinated about i think if you read those things now which you're not allowed to it will be a very random collection of observations and people that i talked to and vignettes and characters it was very little of of you know rooted in a particular place it was just it was just somebody i found fascinating and i had a conversation with and i wanted to write that down um so i think if you strung the whole thing together it would not follow like a logical route around the country or anywhere close to where i actually went it was it was the people
0: it sort of speaks to something that links both of your books which is the ideas behind them, the, 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 the thing that you're investigating with them, or the thing that you're the story you're telling, in a way they're 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 really obvious stories, but it took someone like you to spot them. <laughs> they were there. They couldn't be more visible. I mean, the one thing you didn't mention about uh about Shetler and his travels is he was documenting it. He mm-hmm. he dropped out of society and he wanted to go off and get into the wild and discover himself and all of that, but he was Putting all this stuff on Instagram. Like he was very much connected to the world while he was doing it, which puts a very strange, it's a huge theme in the book. And what makes it really interesting is he was not really disconnected from the world. Mm -hmm. He never really quite let go until he did. And then Big Lonely Doug, you couldn't be more obvious. It's a huge tree. You can't miss it. It's right off a trail. There it is. Yeah. But I think from my perspective that's you connected to those because there was a human story in both and you could see oh there's a human story beyond this just obvious thing
1: yeah for sure and i and i i think that is i think that's a, the first step in in turning anything from an observation or a journal entry into a magazine article or potentially into a book is is like is seeing the tree, recognizing the tree, mm-hmm. but then starting to ask the questions about the tree. Seeing that character, you know that, you know, yeah, very kind of obvious uh, journey and disappearance and mystery, and but then, but then being the person that is so curious about all the reasons why of how did we get to this point, mm-hmm. how did we get to a point where that tree was left standing and how do we get to the point where that one person disappeared and and why and i'm sure a lot of people had those those questions when they when they first came across that but i feel like for for me i think in both cases i had i had history i had experience in these in these fields that kind of gave me a little bit of maybe like a leg up or it gave me the i think the passion and the interest needed to to really jump into something and you know you asked about kind of the the magazine article and the origins of that and and when I came across Justin's disappearance um was because I had spent a bunch of time in India and I was reading the Hindu newspaper online which I did randomly here and there and saw this little article about you know an American uh who had disappeared and this was you know, maybe a couple weeks after the search had been launched for him. And, but because I had kn- I had known about the Parvati Valley, I'd heard about it before, I knew about its history, I knew that there was something bigger uh, than mm-hmm. just this one person's disappearance and just the questions of what happened to him and and why. That there was a trajectory here, there was motivation here, there was tension here. and And so when I came across that, article it was almost like I had found the character in a weird way it was almost like I'd found the character for a story that I'd wanted to tell for a long time mm-hmm. Um, in between in between my first trip to India as a backpacker and finding this story I had worked for a year in India and Nepal as a journalist and became really fascinated with tourism in that country in that part of the world and all the kind of complications that that arise from somebody on the outside coming to that country, what their expectations are, all of the kind of tensions that come around that, that industry and that experience and that that very unequal, often, exchange. And, and so I, finding that story wasn't the beginning for me. It felt like I was already kind of at step two. And, and he could be this mechanism to start talking about these big issues that had been on my mind for for many years yeah. um, about why people are drawn to this corner of the world and what they hope to achieve there. And the same with Big Little Doug. It was, you know, I was, I grew up on the West coast from a, a little island, Salt Spring Island off um, in between Vancouver and Victoria. I was taken to logging protests as a teenager. You know, I hiked in, in uh, Carmana Walbrand provincial park, only a few years after it was created after those, those uh, protests kind of ignited um the war in the woods on the west coast in the late '80s and early '90s, and so I grew up around all of these issues. And to, so to find this talisman, to find this vehicle to talk about these stories that I felt so interested in personally, uh, was just like it's an impossible to ignore fire that starts inside you. Yeah.
0: And and in, yeah. and 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 in the sense that like again in both in both in the case of both of these books it wasn't like you were given this anonymous tip or you know deep throat met met you in a parking garage and slipped you an envelope and you're like whoa there's a giant tree in the middle of this like again it took you spotting this and it's almost like if you look at the timeline of these both of these stories the moment when that traveler goes missing or the moment when you actually see the tree that's actually like a quarter of the way into the story that's this that's well into the first act your story has actually started the story has actually started and it took you encountering that like you said that vehicle for both of that for that for your curiosity for your interest that just propelled it further it didn't it didn't start the story at all
1: no and I remember when I came across um, that news article in the in the Hindu about Justin's disappearance I remember saying to a friend I found it Like I found the story and I think that's the, that's been my challenge over the past year and a half since that second book came out is I've been doing a lot of kind of internal soul searching, whatever you want to call it about what are those things that are already kind of burning inside me that I may not realize, you know, what are those things that I'm already a quarter of the way through in my mind that I researched because I'm I'm interested in it or it just happens to be one of my hobbies are there things that I can that I can almost kind of preemptively wait for that spark and I don't know if that's the right way to do it I've been really thinking about this a lot um, because there's been a lot of serendipity I think in my life and my dad talks about you know any kind of Success in life, however you want to define success, um, is kind of a trifecta of a few things. And one of it is hard work, one of it is passion, and one of it is uh, one is serendipity. And I think I'm almost at this point where I'm trying to reverse engineer those things. And I think it's the wrong <laughs> way to go about it. Right. Um, and so I'm trying to be patient and trying to convey that with my editor as an agent. That I, I just need um a bit more time.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're hoping for that, that moment when that next thing appears and you're like, Oh, that's it. As opposed to putting yourself out there, making a more active search for, you know, looking through research, looking through stories, reading as widely as possible to go. Yeah. Where is the thing where thing you're sort of waiting for? Like I have, I have, the previous 20 or 30 years have created the ground and I know there it's it's coming something's going to blow my way
1: well yeah but it.
0: I could see it I can see an editor being a little impatient with that <laughs> be like no that's not how books work
1: well and as a magazine editor I can also understand yeah. that <laughs> as well but yeah and I and I I really admire the people who can you know, who have their, who have their genre, who have their, their beat almost, and, and can find, can kind of wait for those moments to come, I think the, um, and can turn to it really quickly, you know, as I said before, it can kind of flip to that next project without fully knowing where it's going to go, and the, the commonality with both of my books is that they both started as magazine articles, uh, the first one was for the walrus, the second one was for outside and it's been you know there's now that i'm i've done that twice i've learned a lot about that kind of pathway towards books and i think there's some very clear benefits and some kind of surprising uh challenges that that uh, have arisen particularly with the second one about that pathway but i do i do now trust it because it has happened twice And so I'm at this point where I have one idea that I know is a really good magazine article. It might be a book, but I feel like I need to, I maybe I won't know if it is a book until I do that magazine article. I won't know if that reveals something inside me about my energy and excitement and my questions about this topic and this story until I actually really jump into it and and kind of look at it through the keyhole you know, before I can actually fully open the door and step into something much bigger. And so that's kind of where I'm at is, is taking that step to look at the story on a smaller scale, uh, to try to kind of see if it's going to ignite that fire within me. And I think it, I'm hopeful that this next one will do that because I think it's quite interesting, but um, I think having done it twice, through this this pathway, I'm not sure if it's something I want to do again.
0: You mentioned yeah. the challenges of that pathway, and I'm curious what what do you see as those challenges? Is it is it a matter of like where the story started or
1: the benefits are? It's kind of like a market test. You can throw the story out into the world. Yes, With five thousand world words. It's easier to di- digest for a reader, and you can see if you get tons of feedback and people are really interested in it, that can say something to you. It's also like an internal market test, as I said. Like, if you put it out there, you've devoted months of your life into this and you still are really passionate about it, then that is also something that I feel like you should pay attention to. The challenges, I think, are some of the critiques I got for both my books were, it probably should have stayed a magazine article. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, um, ouch.
1: <laughs> yeah, which, which, you know, I think is... I don't know. I think maybe the first one. I'm being very critical of myself here, but maybe the first one. No, I think I think I should stand by both my books. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's an easy thing for somebody to say, in that, and it's a really tough thing to hear because it it. I guess the critique is that you padded things out and you stretched a, a very as you said a very simple story into, into you know eighty thousand ninety thousand words or something.
0: And to be fair, it does happen. I'm, I will not say it with your two books at, at all, but there are books where you read and you're like, right. I could, I can feel an extra 30 or 40,000 words were just kind of added to this five or 6,000 word thing.
1: Right. Yeah. And I, so, I mean, that's in the back of my mind. With Like this... we're getting
0: a lot of backstory on how this particular <laughs> exactly. interview happened and going up the exactly. elevator and yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like we've really been kind of digging. We've really been kind of looking for pages here. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so that, that was, that was honestly kind of tough to hear because it's years of your life put into expanding this and to asking all these questions and following all these leads. And um, so that's one of the challenges, but a very kind of, you know, modern challenge. And I remember talking with a writer who's a bit older than me who uh, is very successful, written kind of similar books. And I asked him ab- about this, uh, this issue that I was in and he, he was kind of flabbergasted by it. And the issue is that now there are so many more ways to tell a story. Um, you know, the, the narrative podcast boom that we are, you know, definitely still in the throes of, um, the, Kind of true crime documentary craze that is like maybe subsiding a little bit, but it's still pretty. Like if you go on Netflix, it's basically fifty percent of what they have on there. Yeah, and and scripted, and you know all sorts of different uh, formats for telling telling a story. The challenge is when you put your your story, the one that you've you dug into and crafted, and tried to weave in these bigger themes, interviewed people. And published it, what I found with my second one is it, it was essentially handing the public a roadmap to a really great documentary or a really great podcast. Mm. And it's out there now. I have no claim over that. Of course, I don't have any claim over these stories. I can just be the communicator of them, the collector of them. But, you know, and when I put my magazine article out there, I, I, I obviously benefited from it because. It led to a book contract, but I also got a lot of people approaching me about doing a a, a narrative podcast about it to the point where it felt like they didn't want me to be involved at all. They were just going to take the story and kind of copy the reporting. And I had one that came out that, that basically took word for word from my article, all of the reporting, everything. And at the very end, buried in the credits, they said... Like everything came from this article. Jeez. Oh, which like I don't I don't know about you, but I don't typically listen straight through the end of the credits. Like I sometimes <laughs> yeah. go to the next episode. And that felt like that felt very frustrating and obviously violating. And um and we just kind of let that one go. But so the challenge is, you know, we are all very protective of our stories and very protective of our work. And, you know, there's reasons why even within a news organization, people hold their stories that they're working on very closely and then mm-hmm. reveal them at the 11th hour. And I, it's so it's made me really think about, particularly in this era of slightly more, um, I think I can use this word and not get too much blowback, but like a, sli- a slightly more predatory um, experiences you know, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people posting online about magazine articles that are just word for word ripped off and turned into another format that it makes you it makes me second guess with this idea that i I love about putting it out there, handing somebody not only a, a nugget or a kernel of a story, but the whole thing fleshed out, start to finish, you know, right? And or should I hold my cards a bit closer to my chest? Um, and I don't know. I'm still kind of balancing those benefits and and those possible those possible issues um because i for somebody who does really emotionally personally care about these stories and the people at the heart of them like i i kept in touch with uh dennis cronin the logger who saved big lonely doug his widow for for years after and as i said i'm still in touch with justin's mom uh often and it feels like I have an obligation to these stories and these these people. First and foremost, um, that means that when something like this happens, I feel I feel very kind of personally affected, and that my job as an author or a journalist or a writer or whatever is wasn't done properly. Um, that I want to particularly with the second book we're dealing with you know a presumed death Mm -hmm. and a a lot of loss and a lot of grieving and the last thing i want is for any of my work to perpetuate that or or exacerbate it and and so it, it means that i'm kind of constantly feel like i'm i'm kind of holding this egg and i and i and i really want to kind of protect it um you know from breaking or from you know being stolen i guess as much as i in some ways i regret not having the classic newspaper experience and those like incredible skills that you get i don't know if my personality fits with that i i definitely i feel very i feel very kind of attached to these things and i feel like i would be the worst you know quick newspaper reporter who, you know, has to go and interview a loved one of someone who's passed away, and then the next day is reporting on City Hall, and the next day is, you know, covering a car crash, you know, and I think it's something that, yeah, it's, it's never been, it's never been something I've been, I've been good at, it's never been something I've, I've wanted to do, and I think in some ways it's, it's meant that these stories have really kind of planted the seed in me, that it's, it's hard for me to shake, like, I, I still feel like I'm going to be thinking and talking about these books. <laughs> you know, when my kids are grown up. I can just
0: imagine you being on that beat of having to go cover car crashes and then being like, I'm going to need about 18 months to work on this. And then I think it's like the epic story of Frank, who was in a fender bender down on Main Street. Yeah,
1: And what causes (laughs) fender benders? And like, (laughs) you know, what are fender benders made of? (laughs) What's the, yeah. Yeah, and I I don't know. I think it's, it's a huge privilege too. Like I really do. I have to underscore that to be able to not only work at a magazine where I can kind of dabble in a bunch of issues that surprise me uh, that come from freelancers, like working with you on that piece was, was so fun. Like it was such a, and it was something I had never really thought about. And it was just like, it was such an easy thing to say yes to because... I mean, how can you say no to like political corruption, small town and and shit, right? And like lots and lots of sewage. Yeah, yeah tons and tons sewage. of sewage. Yeah. Sorry for swearing. And so I feel very lucky that I I can do that. And I feel very lucky that I get to work on bigger stories as an editor and as a writer. And so that that's something that I've really i, I really, really um appreciated and 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 felt so, so lucky that my career has kind of taken that that route.
0: Well, and clearly this was the right route because I mean you you end up on the cover of the New York Times book review. You have Stephen Soderbergh giving your book a shout out, like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, I just happen to be reading this Harley Rusted book."
1: I mean, I still have a hard time believing that that stuff happened, but I'm I'm the kind of person that I kind of live and will probably die by uh, the mantra of "Don't count your chickens." before they hatch like on my tombstone it'll be like harley (laughs) rostead didn't count his chickens kind of
0: yeah we'll see
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm very very thankful for the opportunities that have come up and yeah the new york times thing was was just was just i never thought that was in the the cards for me um and even when we we had kind of heard that the new york times was considering it for review that happened uh, about a month before the book came out, and my publicist just kind of heard, I guess that they had considered assigning it, or maybe they had assigned it. I didn't really know. I still was just that's not going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. I I work at a publication. Sometimes reviews get get killed for various reasons. The draft doesn't come in. The reviewer doesn't want to do it. They um either like the book too much or hated the book too much, and for both reasons, don't want to write a review. And and so I had by the time the review came out, which was um uh, the month after it was something like five yeah. weeks after the book came yeah. out or something, I it was it was it was done. There was no part of me that was had any expectation about that. And everything that has happened has just been the most wonderful surprise. Um and I I, I do like kind of sitting in that in that seat because I I feel like I'm somebody who doesn't do well with disappointment and the times where I have set up these expectations you know you can see where these kind of similarities with me and Justin can come up (laughs) who's like the times I have set up these big expectations and it hasn't come through I've been you know devastated and so I I, it's almost a, a a skill I've kind of built up is to okay that's that's neat and we'll wait and see um because i i hate i don't like that feeling and i Mm -hmm. but i really do like the feeling of of being really surprised and there's been a few things that have happened with this book that have just been um really surprising and even if i'd heard little hints of things when it actually happened it was this i hadn't in my mind this was just never going to happen
0: What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukaszewski, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukaszewski.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.